Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. It is episode 234. We're recording this live on February 10th, 2022. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I am joined today by the wonderful Mr. Barry Kirby. Wonderful. I've been promoted. Great to be here. How are you doing? You've been promoted. Yes, I'm doing great. And we have a great show for you all tonight. We're going to be talking about how you can fly 130 drones all by yourself. And later, we're going to answer some questions from the community about uh, the types of projects that would be most impressive to an employer, our thoughts on whiteboarding, and we're going to address the long-term unemployment zone should have put some echo effect on that. But first, hey, programming notes. I just want to welcome uh, two new members uh, to our lab. Um, Really excited to have Reese and Karime in our lab. Uh, Welcome. And if you are interested in the Human Factors Digital Media Lab, we are always looking for talent, people who are passionate about producing Human Factors content or, you know, just getting involved with the podcast. If you want to see it from behind the scenes, you can do it that way, too. Anyway, we know why you're here. You're here for the news. So why don't we go ahead and get into it? Yes, this is the part of the show all about Human Factors news. This week, we got a good one. Barry, what is the story this week? So this week, we're talking about how new military technology lets one person fly a swarm of 130 drones. In an example of the growth in autonomous and remote capabilities, the Pentagon has helped develop technology that allows a single person to control 130 drones for US military operations. Behind the project is defense contractor company Raytheon, which is working with the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA. The team has successfully tested their technology in an indoor and outdoor urban setting according to the press release from the company. Dubbed as the Offensive Swarm Enable Tactics, Offset, military, gotta love a good acronym, the swarm was made up of 130 physical drones, as well as 30 simulated drones. Raytheon claimed that the software and hardware used in the swarm allow an operator to command a swarm with minimal training. The operator controlling the swarm won't be so much sat at a desk with a joystick. Instead, they'll be using virtual reality interface, that allows them to look through each drone individually. This creates an interactive virtual view of the environment, the release said. Nick, do you want to have 130 drones at your beck and call? How do you feel about the article? Look, I think there's a lot of really cool technology going on here. Uh, what, What the blurb that we wrote doesn't actually mention is that they are actually allowing for voice commands as well, which is, you know, a really interesting uh, way to command drones, especially when combined with VR. Um, you know, if it if it weren't for its application, which is warfare, uh, it'd be a super neat thing to play with. Um, you know, I, I think we have some complicated thoughts on warfare and and all that. But uh, it, in terms of other applications, you know, a lot of things come out of the military to start with and then um, come into industry as well. And then I, I am just waiting for the day when we can see an interactive light show. Uh, in the sky using drones that one person is controlling with VR and voice. That's that's kind of what I'm thinking. Barry, what are your initial reactions to this article? Oh, I love this so much. Um, <laughs> it's clearly a massive springboard for an, an, a huge number of, of applications. 
And there's exploitation in everything from undersea exploration through to, well, my favorite as I go on about quite a lot, that, you know, the colonization of Mars. You know, the, the ability to remote control not only just one vehicle, but multiple vehicles to do different things is, is clearly where we need to be and where we need to go. So clearly the big breakthrough here is being able to control, you know, and engage with that group and putting forward, I guess, an intent of doing things um, and allowing the individual elements of that swarm or that group or that cluster to interpret the intent. That's really, really clever. But also we need, that is where we need to start thinking about and where people have concerns about the application of autonomy. And this is going to be, this is in the military domain and it does throw up a whole lot of other issues, which are, I think we'll, we'll get into a bit later, but fundamentally, how cool is that? <laughs> it's pretty neat. I mean, like I, I think to me, the the AI on board that would try to interpret what you as an operator are trying to do is one of the bigger challenges. And speaking of challenges, I think what we should do maybe is to break down at least you know from from a human factors perspective what some of these challenges of remote aviation are or sort of remote control drone piloting today. Those types of things. Uh, we have a source here from. Uh, the Human Factors Guidelines for Unmanned Aircraft Systems. This is by Alan Hobbs, Beth Lyle. Uh, hopefully I said those right. Anyway, but we, there's there's a lot of really good information in here, and we've kind of chunked them by category. So maybe we go through one by one uh, and talk about these. Um, and we'll start with sort of reduced sensory cues. So as a, as a pilot of an unmanned aircraft, you know, you're kind of looking at um, a different view than you might if you were piloting a, a physical aircraft, right? If you think about piloting a physical aircraft, you can look out and get a sense of your surroundings because you can look out the window. You can see how far away from the ground you are, from other objects you are, from other drones or aircraft you are. And you don't really have that with uh, piloting drones. You have, um, you know, <laughs> you don't have this additional, I guess, sixth sense of, of, uh, airborne proprioception, if you want to call it that. I don't know. But you don't have that additional sense to assist with things like navigation or collision avoidance or weather awareness even. Um, and and sort of the absence of these other sensations make it really difficult to monitor the state of what's going on in the environment. So, uh, you know, the, the solution is really onboard cameras. Um, they help with this, the image of of the field of view, but maybe don't paint the whole picture that you would get from all the other senses acting in harmony while you're in an aircraft, right? Um, yeah. yeah. You want to take the next yeah. one here? Well, I think just to add to that as well, it's the, because uh, it's one of the issues we get out of simulation as well, is the is the application of G and no ways up. And so then other senses that you sort of take for granted um, are completely removed in, in, or can be completely removed in that situation. Um, the other bit is is just the whole tethering of the um, the unmanned aircraft with with the um, with the controller. So that control link, you know, how the how the instructions are transmitted between the two. So the unmanned air system pilot, um, this isn't just unmanned air systems; it's it's any sort of remote uh, remote capability that must monitor and anticipate the quality of the control link and be prepared for link interruptions because the link latencies may make direct manual control difficult and may disrupt voice communications when they're relayed via the video link. It's quite a common problem now, actually, even in manned aircraft, that we almost take the uh, the, the computer-generated uh, instructions for granted, the, you know, we, without, the, without the ability to sort of have a sense check and understanding that maybe the, the data you're getting 
isn't perfect and isn't quite right. So you've always got to be um, aware that just because the computer says what it is, the computer isn't necessarily always right and be aware aware of that situation. Do you want to talk to, talk to us about the uh, physical characteristics of the control station? Yeah, so you mentioned the the communication piece of it and and the control piece of it. Then there's actual the the control station itself, right? And there's a lot of uh, there's a lot to consider here. So if you think about a traditional aircraft, um, everything is very deliberately designed to be within reach of the operator at the times in which it makes sense to be in reach. And there's limited space in a cockpit, and so you might reach for a control because you, it's a rare situation and you need to activate that control. And it's right there where you need it, where you'd expect it to be based on your training. Now, look at a drone command station where traditionally you, you might have a little bit more space than a cockpit. You might be in uh, you know, a, a slightly bigger room. Sometimes not. Sometimes, yeah. And so if you think about that, it's much easier to just go, hmm, all right, we need this additional capability. Let's put the controls over here. And and so it's kind of like bolt-on attachments to these controls without really thinking through necessarily where those controls are placed in relation to everything else in that physical control system. And so, you know, these displays may not be as easily accessible um, and they, they might not reflect how it is in a cockpit. And so even if you have that training as a pilot, you might not have the same training as a drone pilot. And and it might be difficult to kind of uh, enforce these um, sort of procedures if it's if it's in an office environment versus uh, an air, aircraft where your uh, every action is life affirming. You know, I think yeah, that yeah. is kind of the difference. Um, you want to talk about this next point here? Yeah, so... One of the big things that with unmanned air systems is generally the way where they take off, the the person who manages the takeoff is not the same person who controls the mission, and so that you have to have that transfer of control. So control of the unmanned aircraft may be transferred during ongoing operations between adjacent control stations, um, or between geographically separated entities um, or geographically separated control stations. If transfer does involve a risk of mode errors, inconsistencies. Um, between the control stations or just miscommunication. And these happen on, um, so that transfer happens at least twice on every mission. When you, so you, they, they take off and then they transfer to the remote station to carry out the mission. And then it goes back to the local control to land it again. In the story that we're talking about, we this won't be happening just once, it'll be happening 130 times. So actually, how do we make the, the certain elements there is that when you transfer that control, how do you understand that you've got control of all of your swarm not just the one. So I think that's gone, That's quite interesting because we as humans can only remember so many things in our brains at any one time. And so you've got to hold almost at the status and have that status displayed to you, which I think is going to be quite interesting. Do you want to pick yeah. up the next point? Yeah, you mentioned that, that sort of unconventional uh, aspect of being able to uh, one person start the flight, another person do the mission, another person land. It's a shared responsibility. And with that, there's a bunch of other unconventional characteristics of some of these unmanned aircraft uh, where you might have, um, I don't know, different flight patterns uh, and different rates of climb that are not, uh, you know, typical of of regular aircraft. It might actually present more challenges for air traffic controllers. And so you'd have to navigate that with them 
the pilot might actually be required to interact with other systems that aren't present on traditional aircraft as well. So you might have things like electric propulsion, uh, fuel cells, catapult launch systems, these other things that Um, you know, I did mention there's kind of the, the start, the middle part of the mission and then the finish. You want to talk about the finish? Yeah. So when you come into, um, to finish the flight or terminate the flight, you, you're in that situation where you assume that, um, on systems will not be used to carry passengers. Therefore in an emergency, a UAS, UAS pilot may choose to destroy the aircraft by ditching it or by other means, rather than attempt a landing that could present a risk to people or property on the ground. But that's going to evolve over time, I think. Um, not only, what, it's, it's not just about what they're carrying in terms of passengers, but also um, what ordnance they might be carrying, what um, what other stores they might be carrying that will make um, make their termination, uh, termination of the flight have different characteristics. So that, that's going to be quite an um, interesting evolution. Yeah, it's a, it's a different calculus because instead of where can I land, where can I land, it's, do I save this aircraft or attempt to save this aircraft or do I, you know, uh, do I end the flight and, and try to, where can I land that will minimize casualties? Where can I land that will, uh, you know, reduce the ability for, um, adversaries to retrieve our data. A couple stories on this, actually, before we go on, there was a recent YouTube influencer stunt, uh, I guess that, um, some YouTube influencer took their, aircraft up and up up and and they they i guess faked an emergency landing and so they ended up crashing their aircraft uh all for youtube views Um, and there's a lot of evidence that points to that actually happening yeah the other story is that uh the u.s navy actually just recently lost an aircraft in the south china sea uh because it fell off one of their ships uh and um that's a pretty big deal. So like if, if you think about everything that's on board, uh, you know, especially with we'll get away from that. But talking about drones here, think about everything that's on board, all that data collection that they've done. One, the adversary will know what you've collected on them Two, They can sort of reverse engineer your technology and understand uh, weaknesses in that technology and it introduces a whole bunch of other factors here. Um there's no real way to jump into it. I'm going to jump into reliance on automation here. Um, so with some of these traditional transport aircraft, there's the ability to turn on or uh, minimize, turn off or minimize the um, the autopilot system, right? And transition to sort of manual control the aircraft uh, when you need to, even if um, this is accomplished by fly-by-wire systems. So the nature of these unmanned systems with the pilot remote from the unmanned aircraft, it'll actually require additional reliance on other automated systems to let you know when basic flight control um, is necessary, when you need to jump in and, and uh, sort of manually take over. So I guess it's, it's an added layer between that autopilot on and off that is another piece of automation that can tell whether or not auto autopilot should be on or off. And, and that I guess is the point is that there's these redundant layers of automation that are built uh, on top of each other that will hopefully help 
the operator fly these things. But then there's just so many things that you have to consider that are different from traditional aircraft. Yeah, and I think it, there is a change in behavior here as well because the you know traditionally we automatically assume that you need to revert back to human control because that is the safest way of doing things. But actually, certainly with with a lot of military systems now, it's almost the the computer has to take over to be the safest mode of operation rather than uh, rather than human because the computer can think faster and, and make decisions quicker. Um, and there's loads of interesting examples, and I'm trying to think if I can actually talk about one. So I'm probably not going to. Um, but the the idea that the um, that the with the UAS that you're that you want to be almost take away from the human control, so the so the UAS itself can get it get itself out of trouble and then hand control back it when it's said yes, I'm actually back in a stable stable position. You can carry on now, um, which is just a complete changing culture to what we used to. Um, I'll pick up the last one as well in terms of how we use the interfaces themselves and what they're based on. So current control stations have become increasingly resemble office workstations, keyboard, mouse, or trackball, or sort of, you know that sort of interface device. An interface is operating on consumer co uh, computer software. Some control stations are housed entirely on a laptop computer. A control station that controls and displays source from diverse uh, commercial off-the-shelf providers is likely to suffer from a lack of consistency in other integration issues. So how we take on the um, the, the workstation of, of the future isn't going to look like a, um, you know, a replica um, flight interface of, of what we used to and what we think uh, a drone, drone control system would look like. It's going to look like a uh, command and control system, a little, little little command and control. You're going to tell it where to go and what to do, not necessarily how to do it. Oh, yeah. Or in this case, it could look like VR. And I'm curious as to what, I guess, you know, what the actual interface is for this technology that we're talking about in this story. Mm -hmm. Because it is VR. So are they using like a video game controller? Um, since, you know, a lot of, a lot of younger uh, sailors, soldiers, uh, pilots are of a demographic who plays video games. And so that's a very natural uh, way to interact with these weapons of war. <laughs> it's like a video I mean, game. It's, it's baked into the design now. So the whole yeah. the whole evolution of um, so here in the UK we have um, we have a tank called the Challenger 2. The the gun controller and the command controller are based on the PlayStation control handles. And that was a proper design feature. So you knew that the 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 um, younger de uh, demographic coming in would automatically feel at home uh, feel at home using that set of hand grips mm -hmm. and and even now so like using the vr and ar for training and things like that it's built on the um the game engines that people are used to so um these kids are coming in automatically being part of that game generation they can automatically use the stuff because they're like well why wouldn't i be using this type of thing um so it, it, it that reduce the amount the impact that has on training and the reduction in cost in training just to be able to take advantage of that is so huge um yeah it's real yeah so let's let's talk about let's carefully talk about our experience with this type of stuff because we both worked on projects that we can't release some details on and mm -hmm. we're gonna be skirting this carefully so I'll start um have worked in the military domain and yeah I, this checks out Right. There's a lot of research and development right now being spent on how to reduce the likelihood that casualties would occur. And um, that does uh, sort of line up with 
um, there's all the complicated ethics of of warfare that we've talked about on the show before, but really it comes down to how can we save lives and eliminate the people that are really, you know, taking more lives. Basically the, the, uh, the calculus of how many lives will be saved by, you know, taking out somebody else. And it's a complicated topic that is very hard to talk about sometimes. Um, and even harder to navigate working on types of projects that get close to that. Uh, so in terms of like my experience with remote control, uh, drones, minimal, we'll say minimal, but it is there. And, and yes, this checks out Barry, what's your experience if you want to carefully skirt <laughs> yes, I think I'll um, I'll pick some because this is the, this is this is my domain. Um, I've spent the past part twenty years working in defense and in the R and D element, and like you say, it definitely checks out. It is definitely been high profile. I mean, I think I worked on my first AI remote AI sort of swarming type project. It'll be cracky fifteen years ago um, when I first started to, to look at sort of the the idea of distributed control, distribute, um, uh, distributed autonomy. Um, and so it is definitely there. The The real key things for me with this is um, some of the biggest challenges are being able to keep that level of situational awareness um, for the operator. And how do we, um, how do you give the commands in a way that is reducing the burden on, on that person, um, that they automatically, they know what is going on at any one time, and then it, and it's still considered safe. So the influence of autonomy, so it's not just artificial intelligence, but we, we're talking about autonomy and the different le levels of autonomy that, that we have here, and and artificial intelligence and that, them associated technologies um, are so key. It, it's a lot of stuff coming together at, at one time and quite a nice, um, quite ni quite a nice um, point, point here. But the bit you talk about with ethics, that is huge. And it's it, we're at that point now where um we've always gone along with the principle certainly in the uk well certainly in most western countries as well is that we have this human in the loop scenario no matter what level of autonomy you get to the person or the the, the element that says that um a weapon can take a life is a human decision and at that point that it's happening so somebody has to pull the trigger press a button give a command to say yes that's going to happen and where we get now with this is, um, and the whole point of that is it, it's it's that whole human makes decision to make, to take a human life. Fine, we get that. Well, it, it even gets a little more complicated than that too, because the systems are designed in such a way to spread that responsibility across multiple individuals, to where y it may not be as clear who actually took the life. Is it the person who pulled the trigger? Is it the person that ordered it? Is it the person that uh, found the intelligence? that yeah. then led to those decisions it's a lot of things going into this right it's it's not just a a black it's, and white decision no it is, but um from a policy perspective that's that's sort of where, yeah. where it sits at so but yes they if that person made that decision what what was the evidence base that they made that decision on but then there is almost a, a flip side of that and a, some work we've been, we've been looking at recently has kind of flipped that question on its head to a certain extent to explore it in terms of is it ethical if i've got a way of keeping my troops safe is it ethical to put a delay there so if i've got a delay to make a decision to um to protect my team to protect my troops um i've got a system that would automatically detect 
a threat and then be able to eliminate that threat. Is it ethical for me to put a a, a pause in there for a human to for a human to say yes when actually if they don't make the decision in time, they could then be eliminated? So that was like number one. And then the other part of um, some some things we've been well question we've been asking is in order for a um, human operator to make a decision to make the uh, to make to make that decision they generally have to be close by to what's going on because you have to have the right intelligence the right time to do all that sort of stuff do we need to do that if, if the person is at the other side of the globe um how um how right is that decision to be made um because if you don't have do you have to smell the same air um, and things like that, which is a phrase we've used a couple of times. So the whole ethics thing is is getting more complicated because of technology. A lot of people thought that this would simplify it, um, and it's really not. It's it's making it way more um, intrinsic because it's it's made us really put a hu- more value on human life as less humans have been involved in the battlefield. Um, yeah. So where is the you know do we get to a point where Essentially, you've got two computers fighting each other with a couple of controllers at the at the end. Is that truly war? What what? Where is the where uh, where is the social value in war at that point? Because actually, it's just two people having you know the equivalent of robot wars. Um, how does all this? How, where does it end? You know. Yeah. Um, so the as as the technology gets better, and in theory, the the um, the burden on the soldier, the sale of the um, the the, the person in the air force um pilot. their job theory well it's not just pilots in the air force yes, no, i know i know uh, officer I know, air, air crew is, is kind of what i usually fall down to but actually that's not true either so um but the you know what i mean the, this whole the as their job theoretically gets easier because of automation actually everyone else's job society's job gets harder because we need to think about these questions in, in more detail so whilst it's it, it is sort of that's verging off the human factors realm itself in terms of what we do in terms of interfaces and things like that actually we are getting to that that point where human factors should be helping answer the bigger questions yeah i agree and i think uh ethics in human factors is a really important topic and i'm glad we we brought this up and um you know all the points that you just made are exactly why i got out of it and (laughs) and now i'm in supply chain logistics just making sure you have toilet paper on your shelves so you know what it's a lot less offensive and (laughs) let's actually break down this article though because we've been we've been skirting a lot of the uh human factors issues with drone technology i do want to make sure we have some time to really break this down uh, because, again, this is one person controlling a drone swarm of 130 drones, physical drones, plus 30 virtual drones, too. And I think that's that's one thing that, you know, we don't include here in the headline is that, yes, it is 130 physical drones. but There's also 30 virtual drones as well. Um, and there's a couple key points here that Raytheon uh, makes in their um, in their press release here that are really interesting tidbits that I think we should dig into. Uh, so the first one I want to jump into is controlling a drone swarm changes the way an op- operator or group of operators think about the drones. Um, so some of these issues that we were talking about with the single drone piloting, um, the human factors issues, those might actually go away and introduce new issues there. Um, but they say the takeaways from the exercise help us inform the inflection points between utility and manageability. And so they're thinking about all these types of things as they're putting together these controls. Um, Barry, were there any key takeaways from either the press release or the article that you want to discuss? Yeah, I mean, I guess when you look at some of this, 
using the using, using the swarm capability um you're not just you not just got one perspective you can look behind buildings to access the the view of drone locations um you use the virtual reality environment to um train and to test and see if your mission is viable so you can do a whole lot of stuff beforehand um before you actually get into your um in, into the mission itself so using because the environment that you're using is either is the same whether you're flying it for real or you're you're doing a training part um you, you can use the same environment because all you're doing is put a synthetic end to um synthetic into the output that's where the 30 um um uh simulated drones were so important with this it's because that they that's that's proving that you can have the um uh, the, the the training capability there, so you can actually practice, and you might only have one or two live drones, but you can augment it with, you know, a whole swarm, and still have that training capability for the pilots to make sure that they can do what they do. So, have, looking at the entire package um, is, is quite a big deal. Yeah, I agree. The only the other thing that I want to bring up here with the article, and I felt like this was tacked on uh to the article itself <laughs> they brought up the fact that they added in some uh speech commands and there's a whole slew of human factors issues associated with voice commands uh and i won't get into those right now it's just interesting that they're thinking about this as a, an additional um way to provide input or commands to the drone swarm itself um you know the, that's interesting to me another piece that I thought was just, um, well, as somebody who studies and is interested in VR, I like, I don't know. I, it's, it's super interesting when you think about the various viewpoints that you'll have from this. I mean, you, you mentioned being able to look at the back of a building, um, in a VR environment. And I almost wonder, you know, what kind of VR environment are they building? Is it just from the perspective of the drones? I would think not. I think these drones are probably actively building a 3D representation of the environment that the drone operator then can navigate through, similar to like how Google Earth works in, in VR, where you can just kind of pinch and zoom and really get up close and like bend around and look at a, you know, building from all angles as if you're, you know, a massive entity um, based on all the data that's being collected by the swarm. And if you need to get a live feed of something like looking at a specific window, if a drone's just kind of hanging out, you could switch to that view and actually see a live feed. You know, I, the model wouldn't actually build that. It'd be good. The model building software or, or you know, behind the scenes algorithms that build that would be great for things like mission planning. Um, but it wouldn't give you that live context of what's actually going on, which is where you'd want to switch over to those individual drones. Mm. I don't know, just a couple interesting points that I wanted to make. Any last words on this article or human factors issues with drones? Yeah, I think the final thing for me is actually the they talk a lot about swarming of drones. Um, and actually that's that's quite a specific phrasing they use because um, you can either you have swarms, you can have flocks of drones. They all talk about, they, they all lend themselves to working in different ways. I think this is, um, it is going to be interesting. I think the it's, it's going to be as much about how to keep the the operators um, in the loop of situational awareness in order to make the right decisions at the right time in, in a compelling way. Um, 
but I think it's also it's the it's it's the start of something bigger. I think we are going to be talking about. Um, I, I think 130 drones is going to be nothing in the grand scheme of things, and as the the ability to control more drones becomes more prevalent, then the smaller drones are going to get um, because you can just throw more technology at it because you can have the reliance in the control. Um, it's interesting, but it, but one of the comments we made right at the beginning, I think, is a, is the big one, is yes, this is we talked about this in the military domain, but the application of this is is much broader. Um, we can see some real benefit across this through a whole lot of domains um, co- co- uh, in the future. Yeah, surveying ecological locations or you know any, anything that you can think of that would require a lot of surveillance of uh, an area or even being able to control these massive entities uh, in the sky, I think could also be um, another application. I'm thinking like Super Bowl, because that thing's coming up, right? A sports, I don't know, you follow sports now. You think about a big drone display in the sky that, you know, one person is controlling that has advertisements for Budweiser. That's true, yeah. Uh, um, so Super Bowl's on this Sunday. Just yeah. So. I'm, I'm hoping to see a Kenobi cold. trailer. <laughs> that's that's the only reason why I will be watching. <laughs> All right, let's get out of here. Uh, that, 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 out of the article anyway we still got more show so thank you to our patrons this week for selecting our topic and uh thank you to our friends over at futurism and raytheon for our news story this week if you want to follow along we do post the links to the original articles on our weekly roundups on our blog you can also join us on our discord for more discussion on these stories we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to see what's going on in the human factors community right after this Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you as always to our patrons. Especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors Cast staff patrons, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running. Thank you for your continued support. Uh, a couple notes that I want to make before we get on with the show here. Uh, one, did you know that we do a pre and a post show? Uh, pre show is a lot of times us answering community questions that don't quite make it on the show. And the post show is often a lot of times us addressing additional things from the main story that we didn't actually get to. If you want to watch those, those are available on all of our video platforms. Our patrons actually do get a full audio version of the pre and post show. So that's another thing that you can do with Patreon. Uh, Wanted to mention that, but we also, I I also want to mention this one uh, because this is something that I don't think we, we talk about enough. Uh, We have a discord. Um, and uh, it, it's a great way to get involved with talking with other human factors professionals from all over the world. We have people from Australia, uh, people from, I don't know, where else are people from, Barry? 
Like I, I don't know. I'm like over here in the UK, just enjoy myself on my Discord, you know. Exactly. We we actually have um access to a lot of resources that we have got our hands on over the last couple of years. Um, you know, in the last couple of weeks we've had discussions about cloud gaming, NFTs, even more context around some of the questions that we actually talk about on the show. Uh, you can even chat with others in voice channels, although I haven't really seen that. You know, maybe maybe I'll make it a point to like jump in every now and then. Um, and it's also where we do our lab chat and our lab work for the digital media lab. There's another plug for it. Uh, that's hidden to the public, but at least, you know, it's an effective tool for getting stuff done and that a lot of people in the lab are on there. You can always ask us questions. Uh, anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into this next part of the show that we like to call. It came from. It came from. Yes, it came from this week. It's all Reddit. This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics that the community is talking about. No matter where you're watching, if you find any of these answers helpful or useful, please give us a like to just help other people find this content. It's actually helps more than you might think. All right. So let's get into uh, we have three tonight. Um, and it looks like maybe we put them in the wrong spot, but that's okay. Well, <laughs> let me tackle it here. Uh, the first one here is uh, by Syakine. I probably said that incorrectly on the user experience subreddit. They say, I have an opportunity to do two projects in the final semester of my senior year. What types of projects would be the most impressive to an employer or what types of projects are underrated and fun? I'm going to write, like the title said, I have the opportunity to do an independent study with my excellent UX professor. Uh, in the past, we've redesigned websites, used content management systems, created events with touch points. He's also done research, case study writings. Um, please let me know what type of projects have you, have uh, taught you the most about yourself and what I should consider looking into doubling down on current niches or become a little bit more diverse in what I know. Thank you so much, Barry. What types of projects, um, let, let's let's kind of flip the script. Uh, what, what kind of projects as a potential prospective employer are you looking at in, in new applicants? Oh, can we can we invoke the it depends button, I guess, to a certain extent. There you extent. go. But it's it, it, first time tonight. Um, it really does. I mean, for me, yeah. Oh, check that out. That's cool. <laughs> I need a PNG. I need a PNG because it's... I like that. Um. Yeah, completely lost to you if you're listening to this on audio, but um, but Nick just put up a big it depends thing on the uh, on uh, on the screen. Um, so for me as an employee, I'm looking for something that showcases your ability and really what interests you. Because if if we're doing something that interests you, then it means you're motivated to do it. Therefore, it means you're putting you, your effort, you're putting a bit of you into into what you're developing. Specifically, I think what is a real thing at the moment um and what would really tick a lot of boxes for me is data is everywhere but information and knowledge are seriously lacking so everything's that you know with iot and and them sort of projects if you can show a um a map with loads of data points on it or you've got a you know you've got some charts or things like that that you're doing some really good ui um and also whereas I tend to fall asleep to a certain extent. Um, it's about making meaningful inf information and knowledge out of the data. So if you if you want to focus on something about taking, you know, I've seen some really cool things around, um, you know, studies of, 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 of Twitter, for example, where you've got a um, number of tweets posted in a certain area around, around certain topics. 
and you I've seen some really good ways that that's been displayed and some really bad ways that's displayed. If it's displayed well, it can give you such rich information about what's going on about a certain topic where if it's really badly displayed, then it just tells you that there's, well, there's a lot of people who've got not, um, much more things to do or should be doing better things. So fundamentally, how do you, how do you turn data into knowledge um, also, data into information in a meaningful way, and so if you can do that, as if you can show that in in a fun in a fun way, to in a way that motivated you to do it, then you've hit something that would um, almost guarantee that I would give you a job. So there yeah. you go. Go, go, go do do that, and then then you can come work for me. Good good uh, good feedback. Um, I'm I'm going to answer this in a frustrating way. Uh, <laughs> This is one of the ones in the pre-show that I was like, oh, I, I really have a specific answer for this and I want to answer it. So the question is, what would be a, a project that would be most impressive to an employer? As somebody who's been involved uh, in, in the direct hiring process, one thing that always uh, sticks out to me is when a candidate can be honest about encountering challenges and how they react to those challenges uh, during the course of a project. And so I am almost advocating for putting yourself into a situation where you know you're going to fail the first time around because being able to um, react to these challenges and pivot in a way that's different from your original approach is incredibly crucial to a lot of industries work because you won't always get it your way. You won't always have the tools that you want. You won't always have the resources that you need. You won't always have the access to users that you might want either. And so you have to make some of these decisions based on other information. And so for me, if I were looking at a, a project that you were doing, I'd say, okay, well, what challenged you about this project? What kind of wrench was thrown into this thing? I'm not looking for a, a picture perfect piece from start to finish. Um, you can talk about your process all you like, but I want to hear about the challenges that you encountered and how you reacted to those. Because mm -hmm. I feel like that is a, an unspoken skill that a lot of people maybe don't know how to answer in job interviews. And so that's, there you go. That's that's some feedback. Uh, <laughs> let's get into this next one here. Uh, Barry, you chose this one. Whiteboarding challenge prep help. This is by ICEgg9244 on the user experience subreddit. I've only done one whiteboard challenge and it was kind of awkward. Um, I've read a lot of art articles on whiteboarding challenges, but I'm still nervous about it given my uh, last experience. I don't fully understand how you make decisions without the ability to validate uh, either quantitatively or qualitatively. Can someone walk me through what a successful whiteboard challenge looks like? I'm open to any and all advice. Um, so, Barry, let's just explain what a whiteboard challenge is and then how do you tackle it? Well, fundamentally, um, I use the the whiteboard or the whiteboard challenge as as a discovery method um, of working out, sitting down with your customer, um, client, or users, and allowing you to allowing the entire group to freely use that space to firstly depict what it is that we're trying to do in the first place, and then get to a level of of understanding what the what the output should look like. But the whole piece is. People get scared by it, I think, because in many ways, yes, there is the structure behind it. There is um, that, sort, that type of organization, but it's actually quite a, a free experience um, because you don't you don't necessarily know what you're going to get. You know, it's not like other workshopping structures where you can it's quite you can quite rigidly control how you run a workshop. Whereas this, you can start off with the best of intentions and then end up being somewhere completely different. And you have to have a lot of faith in you 
yourself, the the the, the group that you're with, um, and and the ability to get down there. So, um, yeah, I think that's well, that's the way I use this uh, uh, use this as a as a, as a tool. Um, what's your what's your version of a of whiteboarding challenge? Because I, I do think in the UX world and in the HF world, we do, we do use the uh, the terminology differently. Yeah, whiteboard is such a nebulous term. Um, you can use a whiteboard for many things, and so that's kind of why. I asked you to define it because I use it <laughs> in a lot of different ways. The intent yeah. of a whiteboard is to sort of get something non-permanent uh, in front of people's faces so that they feel comfortable adjusting and mm -hmm. adapting as conversation and discourse uh, naturally occur. And so when you have um, something on the board uh, that you want to sort of modify, it's easy to just erase it and, and do something else to it. I think if, if we're talking about just white, I think there's some better methods than doing that. Use the whiteboard in conjunction with post-it notes. And mm -hmm. now we're, now we're, now we're talking. Uh, but if we're just talking about a whiteboard, I think the important things is to write down important information and keep that kind of off to one side and then maybe explore, I don't know, workflows on a different part. And that part is very malleable. You can adjust that as you need. The other part might be, I don't know, an interface based on those workflows. And so there's a there's a variety of ways to use a whiteboard um, as it relates to user interface. I think a lot of people probably just draw up interfaces um, and, and talk it through with a design team. And I think that's fine. Uh, but having the context of the other stuff is important too. And so again, the, the point is to have something that's not permanent, not a pen and paper, um, not a permanent record of it, but rather a, a, an exercise to get everybody engaged and involved. It's an interesting bit about that is we actually ran one of these yesterday. Um, and one of my newer team members, um, it was his first whiteboard session, his first discovery session with me. And um, and he was, in fact, he, he told me afterwards, but I, I sort of knew before we got in, he was really nervous because we it was literally three of us in the room. We had the, um, the, the user, um, me and him. So I was basically facilitating and, and, and working through the session. And I was like, you come in, you can listen, you can, if you feel like you want to shout up, shout up, you know, it's not a closed session at all. You know, it's not, um, if you're in the room, then you're part of the team, part, you're part of the experience. Um, and for the first, so we, we were actually running the session for about two and a half hours in the end. I expected about an hour, an hour, an hour and a half, and it, it just worked. It was, it was a really good event. And, um, but it wasn't until afterwards, he was like, he started putting comments about halfway through, um, and you could tell he was starting to be that bit more confident. And it's about doing that. It's about being able to have the facilitated space. And we've spoken about this before, but whoever's leading it, facilitating the space that anybody can say what, what it is that they want to say. There's no stupid questions, um, except I, if I'm asking them, because that, that tends to be a thing that I do a lot um, as, as a method. Um, and, you know, just allowing people to do stuff. And it's, it's I, find it, I find them a joy to lead. Because if you get them right, you know you've got them right. If you get them wrong, then it's a bit disappointing. But um, you know, but you know you can finish them early. So I think they're. Um, I, I really like them. They're. Um, and if you've only got one whiteboard, that's a disappointment. You need two or three. <laughs> hey, remind me in the post show to talk about fluid ounces when you said no stupid questions. And yeah, that's uh, that's going to be it actually, because this is Nick from the future here. Our show actually crashed while we were doing a live recording. Although we didn't notice this until about 25 minutes later. So there's 
10 minutes of show that you missed and about uh, 15 minutes of post show until, you know, everything got wrapped up. So anyway, we did answer a question uh, about sort of what to do to address your weaknesses. We'll go ahead and address that on next week's show. We also talked about our one more things. Uh, Barry was really into the Winter Olympics, and I talked about my mods for the Oculus Quest 2. And uh, I'm just kind of recapping everything for you since you missed it. And it really sucks. Uh, th- there was some good stuff in there. Um, with that Oculus Quest 2 stuff, I was really jazzed about the physical hardware. And we did actually uh, release a poll on our Instagram to see if you all wanted to see us do reviews. If that is something you want to see, let us know. I am going to wrap it up right now. Uh, but we will be back next week. Hopefully all the technical issues ironed out. That's it for today, everyone. If you liked this episode and enjoy some of the discussion about remote operation of drones, we do invite you to go listen to episode 203, Flying a Helicopter on Mars. Comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. For a more in-depth discussion, you can always join us on our Discord community. Like I mentioned, there's plenty of fun stuff to do over there. You can visit our official website, sign up to date for uh, for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, then we want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. One, wherever you're at, you can stop right now. You can leave us a five-star review, despite the technical issues in this episode. Two, you can tell your friends about us. That actually really helps the show grow. Word of mouth really helps uh, other people find the show because they trust your opinion. Three, if you want to support us financially so we can get a better, uh, I don't know, system to record stuff with, then this won't happen again in the future. Although we've been doing this for about 30 episodes and it hasn't. Anyway, really, really upset about it. (laughs) But... You can always support us financially on Patreon. There's a bunch of other benefits to that, too. As always, links to all our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. Barry Kirby would have said thank you for listening, but he is long asleep. Uh, and our, <laughs> you all can find him on Twitter at Baz underscore K. He's also the host of 1202, the Human Factors podcast, a sister podcast to this one. And you can find that at 1202podcast.com As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome complaining about technology and thank you again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Have a wonderful evening. Take care of yourself. Until next time, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.